This show was first broadcast on Free FM, Hamilton, New Zealand's community access media organisation. For more information on our lineup of shows and the role we play in the media, visit freefm.org.nz. Hi, it's Vanessa from the Fighting Stigma Show on Free FM. Are you a Waikato local? Do you have an idea for a radio show? Do you want to try your hand at being a content creator on Free FM? If so, check out our website on freefm.org.nz or find Free FM on Facebook and get in touch. Hello, and I'm happy that you could join the program today. We've reached the section in Namkar Pal's Mind Training Like the Rays of the Sun, the text we're following, titled The Integrated Practice of a Single Lifetime. This is the second of the five instructions on mind training listed as taking adverse circumstances into the path of enlightenment, the integrated practice of a single lifetime, the measure of having trained the mind, the commitments of mind training, and the precepts of mind training. Now, if you were with us last week, you may remember the four powers or forces that are mentioned in this section, the first two of which we covered last week. They were the power of intention and the power of the white seed. Namkarpal describes the power of intention in these words. We must set a strong determination, thinking, I shall not let the primary or secondary disturbing emotions, which arise from the misconception of self, dominate my activities of body and speech, even for a moment, from now until I attain enlightenment, or at any time in this life until I die, this year this month, and today in particular. Similarly, make a strong resolve thinking, I will become familiar with and never be separated from the the awakening mind until I have attained the highest enlightenment, and so forth, and today in particular I shall not be parted from it. I don't know if you have made and kept this resolution since we mentioned it last week, or before that, but let's use it as our motivation at least for the program today. Let's take a moment to set our motivation, as we usually do, with this as our inspiration. Thank you. Even though we used it as the motivation for the program, we must admit that it's a very strong determination. Can we keep it up for our whole life? Can we keep it even for a year or a month or even a week? It is difficult not to let the disturbing emotions rule us especially if they have controlled our behavior so many times in the past. Now here's a story from the website tinybuddha.com that shows how much setting and keeping to an intention can do to create a result. The story is by spiritual life coach Alexander Dunlop, and he has titled it Creating Change by Leveraging the Power of Intention. He writes, I got divorced a few years ago. It wasn't pretty. We started out saying it would all happen amicably, but we owned a business together. How much the business was worth at separation, we each contested. It dragged out. We finally got it done with after much pain and suffering. And it just confirmed what I believed. Where money is involved, things get ugly. I remember while I was living in Spain, it happened then too. I was living with a group of men and women who were working for social justice in a poor community. I was there as a recent graduate from the Jesuit seminary, helping out at the summer programs for kids. We lived simply and ate simple meals. I chipped in where I could for food. I kept offering to give more towards the groceries and other household expenses, 
but they politely declined. After the summer program for kids was over, I set out to backpack across Spain. In Toledo, famous for its sword-making, I bought my dad his birthday present, a finely made, full-size replica the King of Spain used to hold in ceremony. It cost about the equivalent of a hundred dollars. My father had given me some money to travel with as a graduation present, so I wanted to bring him back a nice gift from Spain. I returned to the little community in Madrid where I was living. As soon as they saw the sword, they wanted to know how much it cost. It was immediately divisive. Their entire attitude towards me shifted. They suddenly demanded I pay rent for the entire time I was there, even while I was away backpacking. They told me that the suitcase I left with them was taking too, up too much space and I should pay rent for that also. The situation was tense. I left for a day trip towards the last days of my stay there and when I returned, they turned out the lights and locked the door on me. It wasn't pretty. And that was 13 years ago. But, like I said, I'd noticed a pattern. When money is involved, things turn ugly. That's the reality, I told myself. And that could have been the final word, the fatalistic view, to realize that's the way it is. Money makes things turn ugly. More recently in my life, however, I've learnt about the power of intention. I've learnt the reality of the law of attraction in a way I didn't know during my divorce. So a few months ago, my ex-wife and I started having differences of opinion about child support payments and other medical expenses for our children. It got to the point that we each find separately filed a motion in a family court. And I thought, here we go again. When money is involved, it turns ugly. But in the back of my mind, a new voice said, Hey, you know about the power of intention. Why don't you intend a new outcome and attract a new reality? As I sat with that new thought, I realized something. The reason I didn't want to intend a new reality is because I wanted her to suffer. So I was willing to endure suffering as well just to spite her. Wow, that was a biggie and not one that was pleasant to accept. To realize I did not want to intend a peaceful, easy relationship with money because I wanted suffering instead. And I thought back to my childhood, and yep, there it was. In my childhood, there was intense suffering and pain around money. I was carrying that same reality with me. And guess what? I was unconsciously intending it every time. I made a decision. I texted my ex-wife and I said, let's meet and talk in person. This is silly to go to court and waste time and money. Let's sit down and talk about this. She agreed. We picked a time and a place. I was incredibly nervous about meeting with her. My stomach was doing somersaults. And I realized something else. The reason I had a hard time choosing a good relationship to money is that I was afraid of confronting people about it. So I avoided it, and that led to a build-up of unspoken divergent assumptions around money. So in all, I had two big realizations. One, I was unconsciously choosing suffering each time around money because that's what I wanted. Two, I was afraid of any confrontation about money, so I avoided it 
which only made the situation worse and caused more suffering. I made another decision. I set my intention to have a wonderful productive conversation with my ex-wife in which we could come to a mutually agreeable conclusion about our differences. And I decided that I would show up to the meeting and start off by reminding her of the good times we'd had together. My intention was that by starting off with that, I would set the tone for the rest of the conversation. I had a week to set my intentions, and nervously, throughout the days leading up to our meeting, I continued imagining a good conversation and a good outcome. I showed up for our meeting at a coffee shop. I was still very nervous. She saw me outside and came right up to me with a smile on her face. I was taken aback. It was not what I expected based on past conversations. I honestly didn't know what to do with it. Her demeanor surprised me. Taken aback and now a little suspicious of why she was so pleasant, I decided to stick to my game plan. I told her what I wanted to share with her, how I was grateful for all the good times we had, the ways I grew from the relationship, and the beautiful children we had together. And then, amazingly, it was smooth sailing in the conversation. And don't get me wrong, my stomach was still doing cartwheels. But the conversation was going well. She was right there with me in the same intention. And I thought, wow, was my intention that powerful? My shift in energy contributed to a completely different reality. She was smiling pleasantly. Huh? But like I said, I almost didn't even know what to do with it. I was so programmed for pain and suffering around many conversations that to have a smiling good conversation felt really weird. I was like a fish out of water. It was a whole new reality for me, and it took an adjustment. And another realization. I was addicted to the pattern of pain and suffering around money. Breaking the addiction was liberating, but disconcerting. It pushed me outside of what was comfortable for me. I was more accustomed to the pain and suffering. Ultimately, we were able to reach an amicable settlement without going to court, and I almost couldn't believe it. That's the power of intention, and the reason why we don't intend a new reality. We are pre-programmed to want the familiar reality, even if it's a reality of pain and suffering. If we want a new reality, we can intend to create something different. While there are other factors that affect the outcomes we experience, our intention is one of the most powerful indicators. But we have to want a new reality. Now I have the starting point for a whole new experience of reality, one that I have consciously intended. It's an ongoing process, fun, scary, and liberating all at the same time. Now, is there some part of your reality that you're not happy with? Are you ready to experience something new? What would it look like to shift your intention? That's Alexander Dumlop. And if it takes that much to change an intention and behavior just in a more or less worldly way, how much more courage do we need to make an about-face in our whole life, to cherish others more than ourselves? It is surely a fraught path with many pitfalls, some of which we are sure to fall into. So the question becomes, 
Is it worth it? Seeing as how we may have to maintain and build on this determination for many, many lives, not only this one. I guess we have to think of the alternative. Just taking Alexander Dunlop as an example, how much more he would have to suffer in the various struggles with money in his life if he hadn't made the determination that he did. But he made that determination because he looked deeply at what he was doing and adjusted his outlook and behavior accordingly. Do we have the courage to look as deeply or even more so into our own motivations and drives? Can we then override our selfish desires and accompanying sufferings, familiarly comfortable as they are, with an altruistic attitude, an attitude that will take us out of that miserable comfort zone, out into a disconcerting place that is yet free of so much of the suffering? Do we? It's a question we have to ask of ourselves, and if the answer is yes, I must go ahead with this, then we focus on the second of the five powers, or forces, the power of the white seed. Now of this power, Namkal Pal says, we need to preserve the merits and insights arising from generosity, ethics and meditation, which cause us to generate, maintain and enhance the precious awakening mind. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says we create the seed with a prayer May I achieve enlightenment for the benefit of all beings? And doing this, he says, reaffirms our dedication to our own enlightenment and that of others. Trilak Rinpoche casts some light on going about this in his book, The Practice of Lojong, Cultivating Compassion Through Training the Mind, in a section titled, The Power of Planting White Seeds. Now, this is not quite the white seed Namka Pal talks about, but it does give some indication of how we can start to practice the power of the white seed that is bodhicitta. Trilak Rinpoche says, It's necessary to reorient our minds to more positive outlooks if we're going to affect any real change in our mental habits. When we're ill, our body will manufacture healthy cells to counteract the diseased cells, thereby bringing about a remission. Our delusions will also be rescinded if we plant the positive seeds of awareness, thoughtfulness, conscientiousness, caring, fortitude, courage, vigor, and energy. There are black seeds and there are white seeds, or negative imprints and positive imprints, in this schema. By constantly planting black seeds, negatively judging whatever we see, hear, smell, taste, or touch, we will put a negative slant on our emotions, which will in turn leave a lasting negative residue in our minds. As the treasury of precious qualities states, when the eagle soars up high above the earth, its shadow for the while is nowhere to be seen. Yet bird and shadow are still linked. So too our actions. When conditions come together, their effects are clearly seen. We plant white seeds by observing our thoughts and emotions, as well as paying attention to how we speak and use our bodies, continually asking ourselves, if the three gates of body, speech and thought are beneficial to others. Without them, we would have no way of interacting with other beings or the world. Each gate leaves karmic imprints in our unconscious, habituating us physically, verbally and mentally. It's not enough to modify our minds if we wish to effect holistic change. We need to modify our speech and physical behavior as well. Atisha verifies this in his lamp on the path to enlightenment. 
I shall purify all my bodily and verbal forms of activity. My mental activities too I shall purify and do nothing that is non-virtuous. Trilogrimache goes on, Every thought, word and deed leaves lingering imprints entrenched on our men mental continuum. For example, if someone plants the seeds of suspicion in our minds about a friend, that suspicion may grow, whether we want it to or not, and despite our having no real proof of the accusation. On the other hand, if our words are positive, other people may become heartened, feel appreciated and even overjoyed. Many words spoken with kindness have a wonderful effect on the people around us and we ourselves become the major beneficiaries of our positive communication. It's so important to make a concerted effort to think kind thoughts instead of always focusing on the negative. Even when someone has done something good, we often manage to find fault with it. This attitude is the source of our misery because it poisons our outlook. Chandrakirti points it out. Meager in comparison with harsh and ruthless minds, beings seek their self-regarding gain. And yet the riches they pursue and the healing of their ills are fruits of generosity alone. We shouldn't think that everything we do has to make a big impact or attract attention. As the word seed implies, it is important at first to focus and persevere with small actions. When we practice in this way over a long period, the self-doubt connected with our practice will diminish, for every time we do sitting meditation and generate loving-kindness towards somebody, we plant virtuous seeds in our mental continuum. In the song called Milarepa and the Dying Sheep, Milarepa says, When you forsake the big estate until your own small land of self, you must obey the rules of farming. Should you expect big harvests quickly, you will fall into the world once more. Trala Grimbache says, Nothing goes to waste when we plant positive seeds with even the smallest positive intention. In this way, it is important to start paying attention to our every action instead of indulging in negative self-talk. Whether something is small or large is not the issue. It's about what we're trying to cultivate and whether it takes root in our mental continuum or not. Practices such as generosity, patience, vigor, meditation or loving-kindness have to take root in our mind streams to be effective. All virtuous qualities develop from small beginnings, but once they take root, they can never lapse or black backslide. Patro Rinpoche again illustrates this point. Do not take lightly small good deeds, believing they can hardly help. For drops of water one by one in time can fill a giant pot. Charlie Grimshay continues, Planting white seeds will not only free us from the negative habits that invite misery and pain, but also attract the goodwill of others. If our physical gestures, posture and demeanor are not aggressive and our speech pleasant and encouraging to others, then others will respond to us in kind. Even when we feel something positive about someone, we are often withholding and aloof. The more negativity we allow ourselves, the more we'll feel distant and disconnected. But by planting white seeds, the cold separations that define the negative mind will gradually melt through the warmth of love, compassion and joy. Until we attain enlightenment, our efforts to evolve should never cease. It's important 
not to dismiss our positive and negative attitudes as just thoughts and fail to exercise vigilance on cultivating white seeds. These thoughts are the products of deep-seated habitual tendencies, and every time our minds are given over to their influence, we encourage destructive tendencies and negative mental habits. We shouldn't limit ourselves by thinking only positively for a short period of time. Positive thinking can also take root in our mental continuum and become entrenched habits of mind. And that's Trilogramache. So even if we cannot practice bodhicitta at the moment, we can plant positive seeds with aspiring bodhicitta, and that will slowly lead us to the point where we can actually practice engaged bodhicitta and the six perfections. It's not a matter of flicking a switch and suddenly we change from being an ordinary being with many delusions to a being whose mind is suffused with a wish to attain enlightenment for the benefit of all beings and whose actions and speech are all perfect. As Trilek Rinpoche points out, it's a slow process of encouraging the positive and weakening the negative tendencies and seeds in our minds. Eventually, we will get to the stage of engaged bodhicitta. And now we've said enough about the first two of the five powers. So let's go on to the third, which is the power of remorse. Namkar Pal writes, Understanding their disadvantages, as we were explained earlier in the context of exchanging self for others, we should try to give up such disturbing emotions as the misconception of self, the self-centered attitude it gives rise to, and the inclination to neglect others by means of regret. We should follow the training advised in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, which says, It would be better for me to be burned, to have my head cut off and be killed, than ever bowing down to my enemies, the ubiquitous disturbing emotions. His Holiness the Dalai Lama comments, This third is the force of eliminating all at once, which means to give up completely all at once what we have set our minds on giving up, our selfishness, our disturbing attitudes, our self-preoccupation, our grasping for a truly established self, and so forth. Deciding that we are not going to let ourselves come under the influence of these attitudes, we say, I'm not going to let myself become proud, arrogant, or selfish. And if the situation arises in which I find myself acting that way, I'm immediately going to apply the opponent forces. As we have pointed out, it may be a bit unrealistic to think that we can give up everything all at once. We have to start from where we are, and, as Trilek Rinpoche advises, to work steadily at what we can do. Geshingao and Dagi, who gathered many disciples at the Library of Tibetan Works and Art Archives and established a centre in Dunedin, New Zealand, gave a pithy talk on the disadvantages of the self-cherishing mind. It is part of the Burzen Archives at studybuddhism.com. And this is what Geshe Dagi said. You make up your own rules, laws and constitutions. If others break your laws, you catch and punish them. But if you break them yourself, you let yourself get away with it. Geshe Shamawa said, As long as you do not see your own weaknesses and self as the enemy, you will not be receptive to any help. If you feel your feelings are the most important, no one will be able to reach you. Even very capable lamas cannot help someone obsessed with self because advice from lamas clashes with self-cherishing attitudes. In order to be guided on your path by gurus, you must first realize the mistake 
of having a self-cherishing attitude. With self-cherishing, you have all the reasons to do bad things, so you must weigh the reasons for your actions. Not only will gurus not be able to help you, your ordinary friends will not be able to help either, because you will not be open to their advice. We must all admit that we have the fault of self-cherishing, only the Buddha does not have it. We should recognize this fault in ourselves and try to eliminate it. If we at at least realize we have a self-cherishing attitude, it will be great progress. When you receive criticism, you should always feel you have caused it by your own self-cherishing. If you do not realize this, you will get angry. If a thorn pricks you and you get angry and hit back at it, who will be the loser? If we cannot bear small criticisms and unpleasantness now, how can we bear the suffering of lower rebirths? Geshe Changawa said that we should develop target-like patience. If we receive criticism, we feel we have put up a target. If there were no target in the first place, no arrows would have been shot. There's a saying, you stick out the neck for the noose. When you are criticized, when you've not done anything wrong, it is because in previous lives you have belittled others. For example, once there was a disciple of the Buddha who was an arhat who had rid himself of disturbing emotions and attitudes in connection with the three sets of vows. Still, some people said the arhat had broken his vows and they in turn bore false witness against him. Buddha was upset and said it was impossible for the arhat to have broken his vows. Further, Buddha said he would no longer consider as a Buddhist anyone who accused a highly realized disciple of breaking their vows and would instead view them as a menace to Buddhism. Others asked why the arhat was criticized. Buddha replied it was because the arhat in his previous life had been a gossiper and slanderer and caused a king to banish his queen. This now was the consequence. Criticizing, gossiping and accusing others are very destructive types of behavior because not only do they not help your own practice but they also hurt others and cause confusion. It is said that only two enlightened beings can judge each other. We accumulated negative karma whether criticizing true or false faults. Or in the case of criticizing a bodhisattva for doing something strange but for good reason, the result will also be negative. Those who have the habit of criticizing others all the time have an attitude of deep self-cherishing. It is believed that although some monks may hear many teachings, they do not apply them to their practice because of self-cherishing attitudes in previous lives. Harming our enemies is also a result of self-cherishing. We are so concerned with being happy and comfortable and working hard to accumulate money that we set ourselves up as targets for thieves. There's a story about a person who put all of his coins in a bag and tied the bag to the ceiling because he was so worried about losing them. One day the bag fell on the man's head, causing him injury. The point of the story is that self-cherishing prevents our happiness both temporarily and ultimately. Since we've had a self-cherishing attitude in all previous lives, we cannot immediately get rid of it, even though we may realize it's our biggest problem. He goes on to say that we should realize that others' criticism being rooted in both their and our self-cherishing is as natural as saying fire is hot. But now we've run out of time and must end here. Perhaps we can continue with Geshe Dagi next time. 
Thanks for being with us today, and I hope you'll tune in again next week. Please dedicate the positive potential from our program to gaining enlightenment for the benefit of all beings. Thank you, and goodbye. For more episodes, use the accessmedia.nz app for iOS and Android devices, or subscribe to this podcast via Spotify, iHeartRadio, or Apple Podcasts. This free FM podcast was brought to you with support from New Zealand On Air.